This past year has been difficult for all of us. This past year has been a moment of reckoning for me personally. While I've worked in the development sector for 21 years with NGOs, foundations, and philanthropists, I've realized that while we're making a difference, it's just not enough. And it's definitely not fast enough. The past year we've seen events that really hit home. Migrants walking thousands of kilometers with children in tow, locked out of their homes, factories, and the cities that they've built. We've seen how discrimination continues to play itself out across India and the world. And while development is happening, is it really impacting those that need it the most? This made me think, isn't it time to talk? Isn't it time to question? Isn't it time to act? Isn't it time for open dialogue with people who are actively shaping the sector and asking them what's working and what hasn't? Isolating for nearly 13 months now, I've also realized I want to speak to people again. I want to be with individuals and talk to those who have led me in my journey these past 21 years. And hopefully together we can figure out the solutions to solve the inequalities that have plagued us for so long. I'm starting this series with my friend Suparna Gupta. Suparna is the founder of Ungan Trust, an NGO that works with vulnerable children across India. From a cold email about an idea she was working on, I've seen Suparna grow Ungan into an organization that supports the most marginalized children. Ungan's work over the past 12 months has been even more critical because children have been the hardest hit by this pandemic. Suparna and I chatted from our homes in Mumbai to talk about her journey on Ungan's work and what's next in the development sector and for her. Hi, Suparna. Hi. How are you? I'm very nervous about this mic, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'm just booming in my own ears what to do. You were nervous about this. It's been a long time since I've made you nervous, which is great. And as you know, this is the first interview I'm having. And so I really, really appreciate it you taking a chance on this. I think really the point of this is, is um, at least in my mind, a point was really to have honest and authentic conversations with friends I have made along the way um, to honestly speak about experiences, but also speak about some of the issues that we have in the development sector. I guess just to begin with, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are when you hear the terminology, no cost extension. You know, to me, that is like an extension of the whole concept of spend money on projects. NGOs must spend money on projects, spend no money on organizational stuff. So it's like we do expect good work. The world expects good work from us. We as a sector, I think, are very committed to doing a solid and substantial work. 
but apparently it's supposed to happen out of you know some magical words or some formula that we know and then we're supposed to be able to run large organizations large operations you know go to really difficult locations across the country you know using less than 2% or whatever people enjoy so for me i guess it's just one more big expectation from the sector which in a way is i feel admired and praised and i feel that's good but then it's also not that realistic so not that not that new i guess i sent you this email i guess about 6 to 8 weeks ago which is the first email i had documenting sort of our relationship and you know going back to that time i remember one of the things that you spoke about and this was i guess in 2001 or 2002 maybe was around how uh, you had decided i believe it was at the age of 30 to to sort of shift from the for-profit job and and do something in the space and and while i think now thank god in 2021 many younger people are getting engaged in the sector that wasn't necessarily that common back then and so I guess even if you could just walk us through what was going through your mind when you made that decision, how did you make it at such an early stage of your life, and why sort of did you then, you know, decide on thirty as the age? Yeah, so thirty, I think, was just maybe I'd finally become a little mature, and I was also getting a little restless. I used to be in advertising; it was such a fun space to work because I was constantly surrounded by creative people, and there were lots of young people. There was a lot of great energy. but as i always say i just felt like this was not this was not home this was not where i finally wanted to be and so that's when i made the decision to leave advertising at 30 and for me i guess coming into the sector like i said i think i grew up doing a lot of volunteer work it felt very very natural for me to shift in there and i'm very aware right now that there are so many people i have met of all ages who would love for that to be their career but you know for various practical reasons just haven't done it yet and i think today what i feel is there are so many ways of doing it you know your profession and your life don't have to you know they, they, there can be various aspects and parts to it no no that's and and i i agree i think there are many more ways of getting engaged than definitely back then but i guess back then and to a certain extent even now many people think about education as the biggest driving force of enabling themselves to create wealth and they want to give that back to others yet there are so many other sectors that are not looked at and clearly the space that you went into was not necessarily sort of tried and tested and so maybe if you can talk a little bit about how you decided to make that call Yeah so as you said I actually didn't come into the field with any academic experience linked to development I only had my volunteer experience and from there on I sort of learned as I went along and I went to uh, an excellent organization called Vatsalya Foundation where I met a lot of beautiful social workers and teachers and I noticed that very few of them were actually doing teaching because there was so much other stuff coming up you know they'd have to go off to a child's house and say why didn't he come to school and they, you know the parents would say well he has to work today or he's not well he's had an injury from working in a garbage dump or another girl is you know getting married and so on and so forth and i realized ngos who are doing education work are actually doing something much broader and then i think i spoke to a lot of generous people like priti patkar who uh, runs prerna or there was swati from bhatsalia foundation and i think these kindly took the time and explained to me and said okay so what you're looking at is child protection 
you know, I went up and read up on it. Cry had an amazing library with articles because I remember reading this set of articles called um, Stories from the Chiller Room about boys picked up from the streets and put into what used to be called, called in those days remand homes today. I mean, that's not a PC word. We call them childcare institutions, but they were not really known for care in those days, very prison-like. And I think that set of articles really convinced me that I will move into doing child protection work. That's what I want to do. And I will start off by going into rescue homes and shelter homes. And what year was this? This was in 2002, 2003-ish, yeah. I mean, while I, of course, have been very, very lucky and fortunate to be working with Angin for many, many years and met you again around 2002, 2003, for many of the listeners, they may not honestly understand even what child protection means. It took us, even me, a while to sort of, you know, understand that. So maybe if you can go into a little bit of detail of, of that I think when we think about working with children and what what do children need, child protection is so basic that sometimes we don't even bother to articulate it. it. But it's really about keeping a child safe and healthy and well. At Angan, we've been working on issues like child marriage and child trafficking and child labor because we know that when children are engaged in that kind of you know work or situation they are vulnerable in multiple ways so it's really child protection is about looking at children's vulnerabilities whether it's violence abuse health neglect or exploitative situations i know when we met you were working both in homes like vatsalia you know in king george memorial next to malakshmi station beautiful beautiful Again, foresight for whoever donated that land to have NGOs work there. And that setting, I guess, was very different than the settings of these child homes, uh, like you said, or much more prison-like um, and just a different connotation altogether. And, and I remember having deep conversations with you on the decision of where should you play? You know, Should it be with sort of these NGO-run homes or should it be more in the government homes? And, and so what made you decide to take a certain pathway and I guess stick with it? So initially, I think going back to my point of learning by doing, I went into a rescue home, uh, the one that's in Dongri, and a lot of people in Mumbai would have visited. It's very distinctive looking because it looks like a large jail. It's, it is, in fact, an old prison building. So the, if you remember, they were the high prison walls and that tiny gate, almost I would say like a zoo. Lots of children locked in this very specific stench of, I call it like a smell that's linked to vulnerability and poverty and distress, I think. And I think when I went in there, I made a very, I think a very heart level, gut level decision. Okay, this is where I'm going to work. When I made that decision, I was alone and I don't think I'd even thought through what exactly I would do. I sort of knew that there should be no place which housed 500 children, which had no laughter, smile, joy. When I think about it in retrospect, it was very much at a gut level. I went in and started talking to officials and negotiating this very difficult space where people weren't allowed in. And it was very high security. And they would say, no, we don't want to work with NGOs. NGOs are just, they just go and file cases against us and they have all these media exposés. Uh, so please stay away from us. But, you know, I guess I wasn't cynical and I was still fresh and I was just starting out. And I went back time and again, I said, no, 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 you tell me what you want to do and I'll do it. 
and and so it started with me putting together a group of creative people they were you'll remember art and theater and music and storytelling and we just go in like a non-threatening band of people talking to groups of children and that's how our work started and i remember when i met you now i find it so basic that i'm a little embarrassed about it i really hadn't done any of the homework who else is working here how many homes are there i i remember you asking me simple questions like what's the budget or what's the need in terms of how many people will there be in the team i i, I didn't know anything and i hadn't really thought i had thought about just working i don't think i'd ever thought about building anything i think you helped me also realize that while there are a lot of people who work with children there weren't that many people working with the government officials who were just as tired and burnt out and cynical as you know after working 20 years in a really under-resourced difficult uh, system so i guess that's how we started again my memory i'm sure is bad but i i think 82% of the children in dongri at that time were not even in conflict with the law and so these were children that were rescued sex workers or found on the streets or abandoned or parents had passed away while the law had stated a 6 month period i guess many of these children were languishing and and to your point i think ngo leaders take the the harder path and you're right it may be because of gut it may be because of you know our heart and that's important but i do think like this was a recognizably harder path to take yeah i still remember again reading the cases of these kids and how they were just sort of for no fault of their own set in these environments and they never even wanted to speak to anybody and and because of coming through the programs which i believe used to do sort of on a weekly basis all of a sudden there was hope and inspiration and a bonding that that occurred with these kids and i i hope you don't mind but i know one of the incidents that i remember still till this day was sort of getting an early morning phone call from you about how some of those kids in being empowered <laughs> decided that that empowerment would take them to maybe figure out an escape plan uh, like they may have heard or seen in movies etc yeah the officials did not handle that well i know that was at least for me when we were working with ungen trust a pivotal point of just questioning i guess an introspection and maybe if you can talk a little bit about that instance what that meant to you to the organization and and how you continue to move forward i think is is important just because i also feel many times and you know we're at dasra to blame for this as well that we have these panel discussions and everyone just talks about oh everything great is happening everything goes upwards but it's not at all life is not like that and so i think this was one instance but if there are other sort of pivotal moments you want to discuss i think that would that would be really helpful you're right i think there are a couple of incidents that happen that can be life changing for an organization and one of them as you said i remember it was before diwali and because it was a festival coming up i don't know diwali and eid often fall at the same you know somewhat at the same time and you know there was a lot of anxiety about will i be able to get home before the holidays every child in the homes in those days were talking about when will i get out some of the older children some of them were in conflict with law and some of them were also just older boys 
uh, got together and vandalized the superintendent's office and there was violence in the home. And the punishment that they got was, uh, again, a lot of violence. There were, you know, literally arms and legs broken. And it was a very difficult and, and we were immediately shut out. We were told that it's because of NGOs like you and because of you guys try to talk too much to these children and because of these kinds of processes, all this happens. So please leave and don't come back. And I think there was also a lot of fear from authorities that, you know, we'd go and, you know, sort of leak it to the press, etc. So what happened is we had to take this really difficult decision immediately at that, I think on that very day, we said, now we have been locked out. We have the choice of going down a PIL route and, you know, filing a case uh, or, you know, you going to the press, but that would mean we would work from the outside or we would stay inside work, you know, with the same staff who was not treating children well, but who would continue to interface with the children and be their point of contact with the world. And it was a very, very difficult stage because I think a lot of the people who'd seen what happened to the children, a lot of my team were saying, I mean, this is a cop out. What are we doing? We're actually turning a blind eye to what's happening. This is, you know, it's, is it ethical? There was another moment when we had this Monday morning meeting and my team was looking, you know, utterly like disinterested. And they said, well, whatever, we can be doing these cutesy little programs. That's fine, but it's not really affecting the system. I said to them, what are you talking about? What system are you hoping to impact? And they said the government system. And I was shocked because in all my, you know, I had never, ever actually thought about interfacing with the government. I had just thought we'll go in and we'll work with children. And so it was a great lesson to me. And uh, two things, I think one is that we said, yeah, we're going to start looking at how we can impact the entire system of childcare in the city and later in the state. And, you know, later we also talked about the whole country. But the second very big lesson to me was listen to your team because, you know, they know what they're talking about. I don't know, I guess listen, listen to people around was the big lesson for me. Um, like all organizations, even NGOs are actually not that great at listening to the team. And many times it is sort of a founder approach that continues with very little of that feedback. Do you remember around the year this was? I don't know, actually. Maybe maybe 2005 or six. Five, six, right? That's yeah. what I thought. <laughs> so, see, we're not that old. We still remember these things. <laughs> from going from locally direct services and what I mean by that working directly in the Mumbai homes and sort of having close to 100% coverage after this conversation when the terminology systems change was not even really spoken about. Suddenly heard your little bitterness there. Maybe you've been talking to NGOs too much and put long. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of bitterness. <laughs> So what did that mean for Ungen, right? Because again, that terminology is used multiple times. The same terminology is different for every organization, donor, geography, et cetera. And so, yeah. you know, in our case, I'm not sure it was about a larger aspiration as it was about a deeper aspiration because children in, in this case are in state care, which meant that state officials were making everyday decisions for children. While going to the state, I don't know whether it happens by mistake or on purpose, but the whole thing about how do you approach the state officials sitting at Mantrale and all the mystery around it, you know, nobody seems to know anything. People give you little bits of information. And the fact that a bureaucrat would be willing to meet any person from the public 
between this R and this R. I mean, but either people don't know it or they just don't believe it. But uh, Shailaja and I would go and we'd sit at Mantralaya and sit and sit and sit and, you know, ask all sorts of questions about who's around and wait our turn. And finally, we got to meet uh, the secretary of the Women and Child Department. One of the things I noticed about her and then later on subsequently about a lot of senior bureaucrats who we met in the Women and Child Department is you know, there's no question they're, they're amazingly smart people with great intentions, but the gap was what's really happening at the ground. We realized that that's not something they got to hear and they were interested in hearing about. So they were less interested in hearing our recommendations about an amazing monitoring and evaluation system than us saying to them, well, you know, a child said to us during our session that these homes are run like prisons. Why aren't we running them like ashrams as peaceful places where we can heal and rehabilitate. So I think uh, we understood the gap at that time. And going forward, every time we'd go into a state meeting with a senior bureaucrat, whether it was in Maharashtra and, you know, later we went on to work in some very difficult states like Uttar Pradesh and Bihar and Rajasthan, states that were well known for being quite closed to civil society organizations. And again, what we took back constantly is ground level realities. So we didn't have any contacts. We only had this sort of understanding that state authorities want to know what's going on. And then, you know, that's the way to engage them. But I think it's important to realize you went from eight homes in a city to, I think, approximately 230 homes in Maharashtra to then how many more states across the country? I think it was 16 states, 16 or maybe 19 states I think being a nobody made us very nimble and agile. We were this tiny organization. We had no sort of influence uh, with any particular government official, but it forced us to have strategies that made us work with, you know, the secretary of the department, then maybe the director, maybe the district level officials and the ground level officials. And I think we were not fearful and dependent on any one individual. I mean, to be honest with you, I think those that are in the NGO sector, in government, even those that are giving money, all three, I guess, have a sense of entitlement. Some deserve, some undeserve, but and sometimes sort of being that naive, you know, individual is, is good and, and, and taking those risks. Um, but no, I guess... I'm sorry to interrupt. No, please, please. I just, I just, what you said just reminded me uh, at one point, some funder, and maybe you guys helped us through this, was insisting that uh, we have 360 evaluations. And uh, that's the I right term, so, no? but keep going. I'll tell you. I don't know what you're talking about. But... <laughs> so uh, one, uh, one of those sort of uh, really harsh comments, of course, there was a lot of anti-boss comments, but one of the really harsh ones was, I don't know whether this is a child protection organization or it's just children running this organization. (laughs) And I remember I was just fuming. I was like, I know exactly who said it. And I kept looking at that man. No, I I agree. And you're right. I I think we've had many times sort of, and maybe there's a group of us that do this 360 thing. And then we do come together and we're like, look what they called you. Well, look at Clearly, with Nir and I being a husband and wife team, it's even better because I'm just like, yeah, I thought I was going to say that, but kind of like when the kids say something to, you know, the other parent and you're like, yeah. Someone (laughs) else did my dirty work for me. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Did you also, I guess in the shift, 
because I'm assuming, I guess, when you were in Mumbai, majority of the team worked directly with children. And I guess as you went, you know, from city to state, state to 19 other states, maybe at a percentage level, what did your sort of staff look like? Like how many of them were still engaged with children directly versus? We had to hire the kinds of people who would be very comfortable going in and talking to bureaucrats and talking to officials, which was not necessarily the same kind of person that we had, you know, working very intensively with uh, child survivors and child victims. So I guess in a way, maybe there were, it was 30, 70. We still had a lot of people who worked with children and I'll explain in a second why. But I think there was a certain hierarchy that came into the organization that, you know, these people who go and talk to the government or who write reports are really the hotshots in the organization, which I think we tried to balance out because for us, what was really important in the report is what children said to us. And that only came to us from the people who were working on the ground with children and with local officials. You know, I think this is a problem in the sector that to date, a lot of people will say, oh, I can't speak English well, or I can't write well. In Angan, we try to say it doesn't matter. We've tried to flatten that sort of hierarchy. I don't know how successful we've been because it, you know, it continues to be sometimes an issue. But I think it's something our sector needs to think about. You know, who are the people at the so-called top of organizations or who are the big organizations? Uh, you know, there is a sort of a, uh, an unfair caste system, if you think about it. There's the ones who do the thinking and the writing and the measurement, etc., who sit somewhere up there. And then there's the others in between. And then there's the people who are quite frankly doing the real work. Everything is real work, but I think as a, as a sector, we're kind of skewed. And so we did struggle with that quite a bit. I think there are some people who have great technical skills. They come with great academic qualifications. And I tell you, there are lots in Angan who are just, they're just, I call them magicians at the ground level. The way they are with a very poor families or a resistant government official or, a, you know, a very vulnerable individual. And I think it's so important to balance both and to make sure that teams understand that organizationally you value both, you know. We can't change the whole system, but that's something we've been trying to do uh, inside the organization. You're right. And there is, again, hierarchies, like you said, with the NGOs. And, and I mean, this is something even at Dasra, especially after COVID, I think we're just realizing that the communities that we serve, their voices are actually not being heard at a leadership level in many of the organizations, including our own. And so how does one solve for it? How do you really look at diversity and inclusion and, and bringing you know, all of these elements together? Because that is critical. And what can we as, I guess, an organization or leaders in the organizations allow for more of that to happen? And so I, I just want to go back. So you went to 19 different states. That's tremendous. Um, uh, what was the next pivot for Ungen? Yeah, I just wanted to say something about the 19 states. One of the reasons we were able to go to 19 states is that, you know, everybody in our team, just going back to the question you asked earlier about, you know, who did we hire, et cetera. We, we, we reached a point where I think that sort of synergy between being able to articulate ground level experience and take it back, it became something that was not limited to one or two of the most senior people going in, but really it became something that our entire team understood how to do. And while doing this work, we kept feeling we're entering the child's life so late. Our intervention is coming so late in the picture. 
this child has been exploited or harmed uh, once at home, then left home, been separated from family, then moved into a, uh, you know, either a, sometimes a brothel or a factory or worked in a really, or been exploited in different ways. And we're meeting them all the way at the end of their journey. What is happening? And so I think around 2011 or 12, we'd already started thinking about what is it that should be happening in communities to prevent children from being separated from their families and harmed in the first place. Whatever little data we had from rescue homes, we sort of followed it back. And it took us to certain locations and geographies. And we said, okay, so we know that there are these districts in these particular states. And, you know, the states were not surprisingly, some of the states with the lowest social indicators or the poorest states. So in the first couple of years, we set up these community centers for young children and youth in various cities in Mumbai and Patna. I think we chose four cities in Bhopal, Mumbai, Patna, Kolkata. And I think what we understood then, again, something I think only when you do, you understand, is that uh, child vulnerability, when you meet, meet a child in the rescue home or the shelter home, is, is very apparent, right? Because the child has been picked up from a really difficult circumstance and has a very tragic story. But when we were meeting children early in the process, they were still with their families. The work at that time looked very different because it wasn't just about working with a child's trauma or trying to understand what a child needs, but really trying to understand, oh, so this child is from a very vulnerable family, but Angan doesn't know how to work with families. We really don't know what to do with adults or with issues related to a family's livelihood. And yet those are the very factors that cause families to sell their children or to marry their children off, as we see during COVID, for instance. When we went in, we said, let's, you know, let's leverage something that works. Maybe it's the Anganbadi, maybe it's the school, maybe it's the uh, really effective police force. But I guess those places are vulnerable because the systems, the care and protection systems are totally broken. And so there's a reason that there's a cycle where children leave their families, go somewhere, and then they keep returning again and again. As I said, the most obvious answer was that we work with uh, women who were in the community, who were worried about their children, who had themselves been uh, married off really young and experienced all sorts of levels of abuse and exploitation and really didn't want their children, you know, get trapped in the same cycle. And so I guess through this journey, and, and I think it's important again for the listeners to realize this, that you may have an idea of the impact you want to create. <laughs> But you kind of have to continue to iterate as you learn more, as you see what's happening. And that may mean different skills, different teams, different even organizational structures. You know, it's okay to have a really neat and beautifully funded program with neat indicators and stuff. And I think there are many, many times that the senior people in Angan have longed for such a program because it's just so much easier to talk about and to get funded. But the thing is that you have to understand what's actually going on. And in order to work deeply, you have to keep listening. And you cannot hear something and not respond, because then you might as well not be there. I wanted to also share, so when we started working, we were working with adolescents and saying, you know, what do you need to feel agency and empowerment? And 
the ability to say no to a child marriage, the ability to say no to school dropping out. And we started understanding that, you know, you can prepare adolescents as much as you want, but the ecosystem has to be ready to hear that. You know, you can't just work with the easiest, the low hanging fruit. Of course, the girls will say, yeah, we want to be empowered. But what about their families? And we had this mother who came to pick up her daughter from one of our sessions, because very often parents would be wary of our sessions. And they'd say, we don't know what you all are doing. What are you all talking to them about? What is this knowledge? And we try to be as open and say, well, come, come and see for yourself. And one of the mothers said to us, oh, this is a great session. Why didn't you do this for parents in the first place? She was a lady in Bihar. And she said, I got married at 13. And if I had a program like this in my life, I would be a very different woman today. And I would be a very different parent. And I think, again, responding to what came out of the ground, it grew into one of our sort of biggest projects, uh, a project called PACT, which trains women volunteers to work with families and other women. So I think that ability to an organization's ability to respond um, is is really key to how relevant you are, and, and and you don't then you don't end up worrying about is my work relevant? Is it important? Sorry to interrupt, but I want to ask you about that because I think in the grand scheme of things, and this is more going into the sector as a whole. You know, most people want three to five year business plans. Uh, funds are given out in that manner, and there's very little wiggle room <laughs> to respond. And I think COVID was exactly that, where, again, many people were like, but that's not part of the budget. Yes, we didn't know there was going to be a once in a century sort of shift. But but I think if you can talk a little bit about whether the enabling factors or the negative factors, honestly, of, of the development sector here, in terms of, you know, what stops, I guess, an organization like yourself to be responsive? I would definitely say, you know, funders who don't trust you can really be debilitating. I mean, I think I never like to say no to funders and I don't think at Angan we can afford to. But a couple of times when you feel that there's no trust, I think it just isn't worth it at all because you spend all your manpower looking at how to be more compliant, more transparent and on and on it goes. I feel sometimes, um, for instance, filling in those Excel sheets about will so-and-so stay in this hotel and take two taxis and go here? Well, Hopefully they won't have to, who knows? <laughs> so I think there has to be some sort of language between funders and NGOs. I don't know, there still seems to be a, just a lot of mistrust. And I think that's where you, it places so many restrictions. You know, you didn't take permission before changing one line item. These kind of things make you, it, it's going to make your work absolutely irrelevant. And you know, people in your organizations, the ones who are best when they go to a remote district and they're working with, you know, women or difficult panchayat leaders, do you really want them to be sitting in front of an Excel sheet? And you know, for a lot of the funders understand that if you want to show compliance, I'm sure they know there are ways of showing compliance. Maybe we don't know them as in the sector, but I mean, you know, working so much on that Excel sheet, it just becomes exhausting. And I think people are leaving organizations because of that. I don't want to be overdramatic. And the more sophisticated these systems get, you know, people have more and more systems and more and more sheets and something, there are various formula and it adds up to how much you've underspent. I don't know. I remember you at one of the philanthropy conferences talking to funders and sort of encouraging them to say the way you would invest if you invested in a company, maybe that's the way to look at it. I don't know that it's yet, it, it's happening yet, but one one can always hope. 
It's sad because for 21 years, I've said the same thing, which is how could you assume an organization such as Ungen, who's doing something that perhaps very few have ever done before in different states with different situations and scenarios, how could you actually tie their hands from a budgetary perspective in 2015 for what they're going to accomplish by 2020? You know, I would understand if there were an overspend or if there was something that's actually ob- objectionable. But I think the sort of level of the conversation stays very much at some terribly trivial things. I think that's one of the big things you've done for this sector, uh, really helped funders to have better dialogue with NGOs. So we also feel much more comfortable saying, hey, this didn't work out. How can we redo this budget? That can be life-changing for an organization when you're able to talk, you know, candidly and openly about successes and failures. And and to your point, unfortunately, um, majority of the reporting is not about impact on the ground. It's about financial compliance, which again, if one is funding multiple organizations without any due diligence, or any and knowing them, et cetera, makes sense. But financial compliance, and I again said this many times, is the floor of what you do when you fund an organization, not the ceiling of what you do. And so after you know that there's ethics, there's auditors, and every NGO in the country has audited statements, et cetera. After that, hopefully you should be giving the full flexibility of the organization to meet results and to listen to the community. And I think amazing what Ungan did, I remember years ago when you started scaling up. It wasn't that you were telling the government staff in a particular state that this is how one should do A, B, and C. Ungan actually found out how others in the state, in the government system, did A, B, and C, and then said, look, this is what somebody in Kolapur is doing, so maybe you should look at that. So again, you've always been grounded you know, in the community voice. But again, going to COVID now, how did you manage um, and like, what's happening? One of the things that happened for us during COVID is our funders responded beautifully. There were funders like Azim Premji Philanthropic Initiatives, which said, if there's some COVID relief work specifically, we will fund that. There were others who said, redirect it and work as you need to during COVID. And therefore, what we were able to do is women volunteers who already had a lot of local intelligence from the communities were able to go make very detailed lists about who are the families that have very desperate need of, you know, groceries and basic supplies. We were able to provide those for about, I think, more than 200,000 individuals for about 15 to 20 days until we could link them with state services and state public distribution system, because that took a while to kick in. The other thing that was worrying everybody, and if you remember, there were already projections, you know, child marriages are going to increase, child trafficking, like in any emergency situation is going to increase. And domestic violence, if you remember, was spiking. Uh, And there was already data within the first 10 or 11 days of lockdown to say that, wow, there have been 92,000 calls to Childline. So immediately, again, to be responsive, we developed a particular domestic violence intervention and took it back to our women volunteers. But remember, we had spent four or five years investing in making sure we had this cadre of community women volunteers who were there and ready and primed. And I was just looking at the data, and I think it's incredible because our women volunteers were able to stop 211 child marriages at various stages, ranging from when when parents first took a decision to actually on the day of the marriage. The other thing uh, that happened is my colleague, Chaitali, who really is the boss running the operations. 
she came back saying that children are saying we may not have an emergency or a very difficult situation but overall we're feeling very depressed we feel like we have nobody to talk to we're feeling very lonely we got a whole lot of volunteers in our team to run a phone line for adolescents to just call in and to see what is it you want to talk about what's worrying you and to start addressing some psychosocial issues and we found that they wanted to talk about being isolated nobody was giving them information like what will happen when my school opens will i be able to go back will i fail my exams they wanted to share the fact that they were worried about being married off during this time i mean clearly what you and your team and your women volunteers deal with on a daily basis is hard and i think many times at least in this space we don't talk about mental well-being and just what does that mean and you know both of us lost a, a friend in this time period who actually was a volunteer at vatsalia and I mean, are there things that you all do that you think should be done or can be done, I guess, to refresh our own sort of perspectives? Because it's, it's really hard uh, to do what, what you do and, and what your team does. To start with the women volunteers, one of the things we would notice is when they, when they would come to our sessions, they would spend a lot of time just talking to each other and just sharing and, and exchanging uh, information and sometimes gossiping. You know, at the ground level, it tells you firstly that just the act of bringing people together, bringing women together, bringing girls groups together, bringing boys groups together to talk in a safe space is unbelievably valuable. So much of research acknowledges that people who come together and who have access to that kind of support end up being far more resilient and able to cope. So at the ground level, I think that's something we have consciously built into our work. The social work sector, on the other hand, is quite cruel to themselves in the sense we want to give it all at the ground level with our participants who we work for and we work with. But when it comes to our own teams, I think we have this, and I'm I'm extremely guilty of it as well. Uh, we have this issue of, come on, now, let's move on. Let's just keep working. You know, you this is part of what we do. We do challenging work and we have to find ways and be tough to do it. And I think that's something I've realized much more recently is the work of actually making sure that we take care of people around us or we take care of ourselves can really actually make or break the work we do. And I think we, we're always worried in, in the NGO world about let's not be self-indulgent. Let's not sit around and keep talking about our first world problems. You know, especially I think there's always this guilt and dissonance if you're from a, a privileged background. But I think the thing is to keep thinking to yourself, hey, what do I do to just make myself feel better and be better at my job? And I think it's important to do this kind of work, not just because it's an HR compliance thing, check, check, check. We have to really think of the health of the team. And I have to say, I'm surrounded by incredible people who have a combination of being tough, but also being deeply kind and respectful. I've got to say that a lot of them are women, Deval. Today, maybe it's my age. I, I would love to see a lot more happening in the sector, very specifically on burnout, on fatigue, on making sure that people feel more resilient and whatever motivation and compassion they have in their works sustains. In the for-profit space, one works, you know, for a number of years at a particular company, et cetera, they do have sabbaticals and it's encouraged. And, and a lot of the givers, you know, who maybe who have acquired wealth in new age companies, whether it's e-commerce or tech, et cetera, they talk about this all the time. But then when it comes to funding NGOs, again, it's like, no, 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 but but where is this in the line item? And and how how are we gonna account for that that person? 
you've been at this for many, many, many years now, and you've taken the decision to step back. And that's what many NGO leaders, including myself, have not taken that decision. I was not comfortable with how leadership, I guess, what I thought leadership was. Um, And then when when I understood that at the end of the day, you can think about leadership as something that you do, you lead when you need to lead and when you can lead. And it doesn't, it's not, it's not who you are, but it's something you do. Then you understand that you can hand that over to somebody else who's then in a better position to lead is possibly better than you. I love the work and I will work, but I I don't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, right at the front doing it. And I think the work I'll try to do, you know, I have been immersed in this work for so long that I can't honestly just turn around and say, oh, I'm no longer interested in it. But what I am interested in doing is maybe doing work which is less siloed or work in a broader way. What this whole social media has shown me is there's a certain democratization of information and of action. Because if everybody can be an activist in how they live and how they work and, you know, the daily decisions that you take, then imagine the scope of scale. Thank you, Saverna. This has been fantastic. Thanks, Eva. That was great fun. Thanks for listening. I'm Devil Sanghi. If you'd like to know more about Ungan and support their excellent work, please go to Ungan India. That's A-A-N-G-A-N India.org. Or you could go to our website, thusra.org forward slash N-C-E. We've got show notes, links, and much more about all of our guests. Don't forget to subscribe to No Cost Extension wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about the show. Until next time, stay safe. No Cost Extension is produced by Vaca Media.